there, I'm Dr. Amy King, otherwise known as Dr. Amy, and this podcast is The Most Important Medicine. If you don't know me, I'm a licensed psychologist, trainer, and consultant, and on this podcast, we're here to discuss how talking about trauma and providing a space for healthcare professionals and their patients to share their experiences is how we transform medicine. I work with physicians and healthcare organizations on the daily, and every time I begin these conversations and even hint at the discussion about trauma, I met with two things, either intense, compassionate curiosity or a whole lot of skepticism. And that's what we're here for, to make understanding and discussing trauma accessible, and even more important, how to respond to trauma so that you feel competent as a provider. Every time you join me, I want you to hear practical information and leave with tangible tools that you can use with patients today. So today we are talking to my special guest, Dr. Eric Weiser. Uh, Dr. Weiser is a family physician. His clinical interests are maternal care, women's health, and rural health care education, and general primary care. As the child of two public school teachers, Dr. Weiser values education and believes patients should know as much about their health as the provider does. He tries to eliminate barriers so that patients, that patients may encounter while navigating complex medical environments. And he always brings a family approach to primary care and enjoys the comprehensiveness of family medicine, everything from birth to end of life. Welcome, Dr. Weiser. Thank you. Um, well, so that's your formal introduction. Um, tell me a little bit more about yourself, what you do, and the medicine you practice. Sure. So um, I am from the East Coast. I'm from Pennsylvania originally, and I did most of uh, my formal training back there. So uh, med school, Temple, residency in Erie. Um, And then, um, and my wife's also a family physician, and the two of us relocated to Oregon about 16 years now. And our first practice was down in Staten at Sandy M Hospital. Uh, We Found this great opportunity to, to, to start a clinic uh, while being fully employed, and we're rural doctors, so we did um, everything from outpatient care to inpatient medicine, um, OB, neonatal care, C-sections, uh, ER coverage, um, so all that stuff. So uh, we did that for six years and then uh, moved up here uh, to Portland at OHSU, um, and I've been here ever since, so about 10 years now. Uh, my current job is uh, a lot different than my old one. So I'm still clinical about 20% of the time, 20, 30% of the time I, I do clinical medicine and see patients um, in an outpatient setting. And I also happen to be an assisted living medical director. And then uh, the rest is spent with, with education. So some uh, with medical students in, in the department. And then my big role is I'm the interim director of the Oregon AHEC. So we have a statewide network um, that's really designed to um, really help, uh, you know, have a workforce that's just as diverse as the communities that it comes from. And also, the, I think the big mission of AHEC is to even out the distribution of healthcare workers. We really want to get healthcare professionals where they're needed the most. Um, and there's some places in rural Oregon that's really tough to get people at. Yeah. Okay. I want to go back for just a second, because I don't think most people know this, um, or many people know this who might be listening, which is, let's go back to this time in Staten you were talking about. Yeah. You and your wife have this um, family medicine practice in a small town. Um, for those of you that aren't familiar, Staten is about how big would you say, Eric? Yeah, Staten was a town about uh, somewhere between six and 7,000. Um, and then that's where we lived and that's where the hospital was. And then our clinic opened in Sabluni, which is about a mile away. It's the other side of the highway. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they, they had a doctor. I don't think they had a doctor since World War II, maybe. Uh, it was a town of 3,000. Uh, so it's... Um, 
CNEM has a has a network of small clinics in small towns. It's really cool. So a uh, clinic uh, like I don't know, like somewhere between two and four providers. Uh, so not like um, I don't know a clinic that most people go to, but they're located in a string of small towns that that kind of go up the uh, North Sandyham Canyon. Um, it's pretty neat. Yeah, I mean, I'm from a small town in Iowa originally, so I think small town physicians are the heartbeat of America. And and I, I don't know. I want to emphasize what you said a minute ago. You were doing obstetrics, ER, uh, family practice, which means peds and everything from brand new babies through geriatrics, right? Yep, everything. Yeah, and we even you know right behind us was one of the largest uh, retirement centers or places, and so we did like geriatric care and. Um, so, so every, yeah, so everything, so we could go from like delivering baby uses to go to the nursing home. Yeah. So what do you think, um, how would you differentiate rural medicine a, a bit more from, you know, somebody who's practicing family medicine, which is what you were practicing, but in more of an urban area? Um, you know, I think, um, and, and I think it depends on where you practice in the urban area. There's some places I think that really close to rural medicine and, I start, I think it has a lot to, similar to, to, um, to rural medicine. I, you know, I think what, what, what does the difference is, is um, one is the, the, you know, and not all practices have a broad, a broad scope like we did. Uh, we were at a hospital system that, you know, had a couple general surgeons, one orthopedic surgeon. Uh, for most of our career there, they didn't have an OBGYN. We provided those services and anything that we didn't, we couldn't handle then we had, uh, referral partners nearby. So it, it's, you know, it's hard getting those referrals. Um, the patients had to travel for any specialized care. So there's something that we couldn't handle. Patients had to travel pretty far to get it. Um, and then, um, you know, sometimes the Salem area was a little bit taxed. So it took a while longer than you wanted to, to get a cardiologist. Or, uh, sometimes they had to travel to Portland to get a neurologist. Um, and um, it was really hard to get a psychiatrist. So, so it was, um, you know, a broad spectrum of care, which was great. Um, I think uh, it's certainly in a small town, everybody knows and everybody seems like they're related to one another. So there's, um, there's an intimacy that I, um, that was shocking that it wasn't added. like, um, I think that's the, one of the biggest difference is not just the, the scope of the practice or, or referral networks or anything, but um, you know, people know where you lived. People knew what you drive. We knew what people, where people lived and drived. And, um, you, um, there, um, and, and it, it, so there's an intimacy that's, that's not an urban center, even if it's underserved. Yeah. So there must be kind of, uh, temperament or personality, um, characteristics that would be helpful for someone practicing rural medicine. Can you speak to that? Yeah. So I, I think, yeah, again, I'll, I'll break it down to the, like the practice and then, then kind of what it is like living and working in a small town. I, you know, I think as far as the, like the practice goes, your scope and your goals have to be uh, flexible with the community needs. So like sometimes, uh, you know, I came in for residency with an idea of, of what they wanted to do. And I had like, for example, I had an idea that maybe I'd want to do some endoscopy too. I had like colonoscopies and um, EGDs to my scope and, and and talking to general surgeons, they're like, we'll train you, but you can't do them here. And I said, well, why is that? They're like, cause we'll go bankrupt. This is our, this is how we go keep our practice alive. And you like having general surgeons, don't you? And I said, yes, I do. And I said, thank you very much for explaining it to me. And so like, sometimes I, I, you know, sometimes there was demand for a skill set that, that I didn't have that, that I had to go out and get like cardiac stress testing. It's not something that I, 
knew I needed, but I, you know, the first time I had someone who was worried, um, had heart disease and that we should get a cardiac stress, I, I, I could get it. Uh, I just had trouble getting it. And, and so, so you just learn how to do it had to go um, and seek it out. Yeah. And, and the, the converse is true. Like sometimes you have that skill set that you, you think you need, or you really are passionate about and, the, and your community doesn't need it as much. And so, um, so you give it up. So you, you're flexible to what your community needs, I think is the, the first part, the really important part professionally. And then the personal part is, you know, there's, I think um, I, I teach, teach an academic health system now and we, and we talk about, um, you know, professionalism and, and keeping your patients, your patients, your friends, your friends, um, and not, you know, having those things mix. Um, but in a, in a small town, your friends were your patients, your patients were your friends. And, and so you, you couldn't go to the grocery store without running into patients. Uh, you couldn't go for a walk without running into patients. Um, and likewise, they couldn't go for a walk and not running into their doctor. Um, and so it's, um, that sort of barrier between your professional personal life, um, isn't there. And sometimes you, sometimes you see intimate parts of friends that you wouldn't want to. And, and, and sometimes, um, you know, and, and, and so you just, you have to discuss it openly and see where boundaries are make sure that, that everybody's happy with them. Um, meanwhile, there was, you know, like when patients come to your door, um, you know a lot about them before you open a charter, ask them questions, you know, kind of where they live, where they're from, what their families are, what their, um, what their family histories are. You, you kind of know all about the risk factor. I, I want to circle back to this really important. I, I, I don't think physicians are taught that kind of flexibility, right? That they're really taught to be very boundary oriented, mm-hmm. right? So say a little bit more about that. Cause you, you, you went through it really quickly. Like, you know, patients are patients and you know, what's personal is personal, but that doesn't happen in rural medicine. No, and, and it can't. Um, yeah. And, and so it's funny when I teach, teach medical students now, we talk about professional boundaries um, and, and it's, uh, it's amazing. Cause, um, and, and we blur them here in Portland too. I'll, I'll give you an example, but um, we're, we're taught not to have, you know, not to take care of friends and loved ones. Um, and I think the loved ones is, is something that's a little bit easier, but like, like something simple was once, um, my kid came down with a horrible case of strep throat on a Saturday and it was a little three day weekend. And I was a doctor on call and nobody else, none of the other doctors were in town because it's a three day weekend. And so like, do you prescribe antibiotics to your kid is the question. Um, and certainly if that was on a test, the answer is no, you should stop what you're doing and take your kid to a, um, you know, an outside ER urgent care and have it treated. Well, when you're in a small town and you're on call, you can't leave town and there's no way to, you know, like there's no one else to, to take care of your kids. So yes, I wrote my kid in the best script for penicillin. It's not what you're supposed to do. Um, but it, it's something that, that has happened. And the, the intimacy to it is, is the other way too, is that, you know, families, um, there were a bunch of families in that town that that we felt a part of. Um, you know, I, I think family is easy to describe as, as you know genetics, but um, you know, I, I remember one summer we got invited to a family reunion, and and I it was during the week. I didn't want like you know taking vacation to attend someone else's family reunion is a little bit weird, um, and I didn't go. And there was only like like most of my patients weren't like didn't make appointments. Only instead of seeing twenty people a day, I saw six. Why? Because they're all at the family reunion that I was invited to go. Um, and, and so like, it is, um, it's, we, you know, you know, we're like in the common amount knowing your patients live is sometimes in, when um, there are these houses, yeah. um, I remember doing it in a family's house and it was a house that I'd been to before. Mm-hmm. Um, and they all came together as a family and, 
um, all came up with, with decision and, and, and it was great to participate that way. And it was also one of the most beautiful hard conversations that I've been ever a part of why you know, that, that clinical sterility structure of an exam room uh, was gone because it was in someone's living room and it was a big family. Like I couldn't hold it in my office. It didn't have enough room. So, but holding it in someone's living room was a lot easier. How did practicing that way make you a better physician? Um, you know, I think it, you know, I, it didn't give me an understanding of definitely asking where patients are at and meeting them there, as opposed to, you know, having my, my own belief to structure uh, structures. And, 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 and so I think, I think that was helpful. Um, it, I, it's, um, you know, I've had conversations with colleagues too. Like I, I, uh, from that, I like living in the community that I take care of. I just, I, um, I like, I like doing that. So even now with my clinic in Southwest Portland, um, I live within walking distance of the clinic and, and, and run into my neighbors who also go to the same office and things. So, so I, I enjoy that, but like I said, there's an intimacy there that I've had colleagues who really don't like that. They really want their personal lives separate, uh, from their professional lives. And, and so I don't, I don't think, I don't think that, um, that integration is, is for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. I want to just underscore something you just said for our listeners, which is um, your commitment was asking where patients are and meeting them there. And I think often that gets overlooked, right? When there's a lot to get through in a visit or, you know, a lot to get through in an exam, um, we don't meet people where they are. Um, I think right now the structures of primary care are are against that. You know, we, uh, you, you have to see a lot of patients in a short period of time to support the, the building and the staff and, um, you, you know, all that's all around you. And, and, um, and it's still very revenue driven. So, um, yeah, it's, you can't do that in a 15 minute appointment. Sure. Sure. Um, you know, you mentioned that psychiatry was hard to come by, um, obviously in rural parts of, of any area, um, which kind of leads me into this discussion around, you know, trauma presenting in medicine. I imagine because of some of the relationship you had with your patients and you got to know them and you're part of the community, did that make it easier or harder for them to talk to you about their own adversity or uh, stress or trauma they may have gone through or were currently going through? Um, the answer is both. Um, you know, they're, um, you know, you, especially when, when, when like if some of the traumas are, um, newsworthy, um, you know, if they're car accidents or, or when you get those teens that die or, or, um, even other things like the big matriarch or patriarch or family dying or mm-hmm. like everybody knew in town. Like, so, so some of those traumas were shared experiences and, and, and when they came to the exam room and they were, they were having, um, those difficulties, it, you know, in a big city, you know, if someone's, you know, if a, if a head of a major family died, like I, you wouldn't know, uh, even reading, you know, no one reads the choice anymore anyway, but like you wouldn't know that that, that was happening. And, and since it had a, that shared living experience, like if there was a major car accident on the highway, everybody knew. Yeah. Uh, and, and so that was, that was easy. What made it hard sometimes is that, um, you know, some people disclose to their doctor what they wouldn't disclose to their friend. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, so sometimes patients 
struggle to get over that barrier. Mm-hmm. How, how did you encourage or support those conversations when, you know, so that your patients felt comfortable? Um, you know, I, I think there is uh, giving somebody space too. I, I'm from the East Coast uh, around Philly and I tend to talk fast and um, <laughs> I've had to slow down. Um, I've had to give pause and give space and, and it's okay to sit in a room and say nothing but pass the box of tissues. Um, you can tell me as much or as little as you want and let me know how I can help you. I, I can't even tell you how often I hear physicians say that almost surprised, right? Like I didn't realize that sometimes just saying nothing was the best thing I could do. Yeah. But yeah. I hear you It's say, slow down, pause, give space, pass the tissue and then say nothing. How does that honor your patient? You, you know, and, uh, when you, when you don't ask open questions, you just like, you, you know, you don't give people answer the question that you asked. And so if you don't say anything or you ask a really open question, you're like, Hey, I, I think it looks like you're struggling with something today. Tell me about that. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you um, I get surprised. We all get surprised what answers we get because um, you know, we walk with our own biases. And even if you are understand the local news and, and who had, um, you know, who had died recently or what, what tra- like community trauma was suffering, um, you know, we, uh, we assume how they're going to react. And so um, when you start with that assumption, like they'll follow suit. When you start with nothing, mm. don't know what you're going to get. Um, and, and you're kind of gone for a ride a little bit. You don't know what's going to come out or how long it's going to take. Um, but it, it's, um, you know, it, it's their, it's their health and concerns and and not, not mine. So you give them that space. Okay. I love that. Right. Because I, as a psychologist, I'm totally happy sitting in that gray area, right. Of, of like, let's just see what comes up. If I ask this open-ended question, but I mean, you're in an academic setting too. That must be terrifying for young residents. Yeah, and I and I think you know we always worry about the time frame. You can make up time later. That's kind of t- uh, good. And sometimes you know, like um, with patients, I go in my own agenda. Like I worry about his cholesterol and his diabetes and his hypertension or whatever. And then you off on a tangent. You're like, oh great, now what I do? Um, and either a you can do some asynchronous care. You can do some things through my chart or get labs later. Or the I really think the follow up visit is like, hey, we didn't get to it today. Why don't you come back? And so right now, my you know, I'm not as clinical enough, don't have that flexibility. Um, and even residents are, you know, they're not full-time, they're doing other things and other rotations and they're learning other things. They're not the clinic full-time, but when you're in the clinic full-time um, and you're designing your schedule and you're trying to take on, you can capture your patients, make sure you take just enough patients on that you can take care of. And, and so, you know, like, Hey, we didn't get to, we didn't get your hypertension today. Why don't you come back in two weeks? And we'll, we'll, we'll tackle it. So the, like the follow-up visit is, is, is kind of where you can, um, get that other agenda stuff done. So, I mean, this is important because I think, again, this is a barrier that I hear from a lot of physicians, right? Which is, wait, so you want me to put off the labs or you want me to put off these other things or do this in a follow-up appointment so that I can, like, I'm just going to use their words, not mine, like do therapy in the middle of, of my day like that. Again, that seems kind of overwhelming. What would you say to that? You know, I think I think the other thing we teach in medical is that like that biopsychosocial model, right? 
Um, and well, if, if you're stick on, on the bio model, then you don't get to the rest of the stuff. And so those things are, um, have equal weight to them. Um, and we also know people with chronic diseases don't get, um, it, you know, um, a lot of the care that they need because you get focused on the chronic disease. So like, it's so I think it's easy to, for us to focus on the chronic disease. It will come, you'll, you'll get it. Mm-hmm. Um, cause that's, you know, that's what we focus on. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's okay to have somebody come back just for a preventative visit. You know what? We haven't talked about your preventative health in years. Why don't we, why don't you come in instead of every three months for your diabetes in between and let's do a preventative visit and not talk about your diabetes. Um, oh so I think you can compartmentalize it like that. And it's a little easier. Um, but, um, yeah, it, it, it was weird. Cause I think too, like, I'm not a, I'm not a licensed therapist. I, I don't have a lot of training in there. Sometimes I felt totally overmatched, um, underprepared. Um, but if that's, what's needed in the moment, it's okay. Mm-hmm. And I, I really appreciate that you're offering a model too, right? Which many people who are listening will be familiar with, which is the biopsychosocial model. And often if you're just giving weight or credence to one part of that Venn diagram, right, then we're missing these other parts, the social and emotional piece that have a tremendous impact on people's health. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what would you say to someone who maybe isn't practicing rural medicine, but they do want to know more about that lived experience of the patients that they're serving? That's, that's the key thing there is to, to not to assume and to ask. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, I think it depends on, on, on how much or, or what you want to know. So if you want to know just about your patients, you ask, and I, I learned from a mentor of mine, um, LJ Fagnan, he uh, also practiced in a rural area before coming to, to OHSU. And in, in his um, like history section of the chart, he asked about, like he started every visit by asking about the patient's family and what they were doing, what they enjoyed doing, what their hobbies were. And he documented a couple sentences in the chart every time. And, and now that I inherited a lot of his patients, I, I have this decade long record of, wow. of their names of their spouses and their spouse's health and their kids and where their kids are at and their, uh, what their hobbies are. And, and you can kind of see it's, it's, you know, some of it now is only a page long, but it's these bullet points. And he started off every conversation like that. Um, And so you can do it that way on a personal level. And and then the other thing too, is like that, those, those shared experiences of what's going on in the community. It's, it's to be active in your community to understand what those, what those things are. And and what, what you, you used the example before, like some things are well-known, right? Because it's in the news or it's in a community, other things you might not know about, right? There's, there's, hurt and harm that happens in communities that if you don't live in that community, you may not be aware of. Right. So you have to ask. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you have a way that you, uh, you know, I think, I think it's, it's kind of like that introduction that we did at the beginning just to ask people. And, and I, I really do benefit from, from being people's primary care for a long time. So even, here that I don't have the, I'm not a full-time practitioner like I was before. I still often, I have patients that I've, I've had for 10 years. Um, and so, so I, when you approach medicine with a long-term relationship, you, that first visit, you work on introductions, where they're from, what are they about, what do they do, what do they want to do, 
Uh, I have a colleague too that just answers uh, questions. What do I need to know about you to take great care of you? Wow. Okay. Say that again. What do I need to know about you to take great care of you? Know about you to take great care of you. I, I love that. I might steal that. <laughs> um, what do I need to know about you to take great care of you? I mean, that could be, that's really a welcoming yep. question. Right. And, and it's open. Like, you, you, um, again, sit back, prepare for what comes at you. Uh, you don't know what's going to come out of that. Sometimes it's, oh, I think we got it all. Or um, sometimes you, you learn a little bit extra. Well, and it really honors that the patient knows him or herself. Mm-hmm. Right. Like you're saying, what do I need to know about you to take good care of you versus let me tell you what you need. Yep. So that I can take good care of you. And then the con- conversely, like you listen to that. And I don't, I don't have all my patients memorized. You have to find somewhere in your EMR where you can write it, you, where you write it always routinely and that you can look at and find it later. Because mm-hmm. the last thing you want to do is someone to give, say something vulnerable and then you forget. Oh. So you stick that somewhere and you try to be very consistent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's important too, right? Because I, I think one of the fear of providers is that they're going to open this can of worms and then they're not going to know what to do with it. And, and I hear your point of reassurance, which is it's okay to just listen. It, it, it means a lot just to be asked. But I also hear you saying something really important, which is when they do talk to you about something sensitive, you can't lose it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I imagine then you risk losing a lot of trust. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then you have to kind of reinvent that. Like if you have to ask again, um, then like, like that was hard enough to get out the first time for everybody. And, and then, you know, asking again, most patients understand that we don't have everything memorized, but um, then you start over again every time. And so you um, knowing that ahead of time and, and building on that as, you know, in 20 minute segments is, is really important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then you don't have to start over every time, but also it says to the patient, I honor you. I heard you. I'm circling back to this. I mean, I think that's why pediatricians, family practice docs have like the best job because you really get to see these people over the course of their entire life and you are building. And, and I think what I've learned too over the years is that, um, um, you know, I, the colleague that I, I told you does that, uh, her name's Kristen Gilbert. I know where she keeps that stuff in the chart too. And so when, when Kristen Gilbert's patients come to me, um, there's an immediate trust there. Like, hi, I'm Dr. Gilbert's partner. Um, and I look at those things. And so I walk in uh, to a patient that I don't know. Um, but I learn quickly within seconds, something about them that I need to know to take good care of them. Um, and I can walk in prepared on her behalf. Oh my gosh. That's so important. Um, so I imagine whether you're, you know, you're, you know, you mentioned you're in more of an academic role, but whether you're practicing rural medicine or practicing family medicine in a more urban area, when you're open to having these conversations, um, it can feel like there's some vicarious trauma for you as a provider. What do you do um, to take care of yourself? Uh, yeah, that's tough. I, I think um, I'm still learning how to take care of myself is the, is the first part. Um, I'm still working on it. But I, um, you know, I think 
Um, I'm trying to have um, more effective time off, you know, um, trying to do things. Uh, yeah, it, it's tough because having that EMR that follows everywhere, no matter where I go, that cell phone service, I have an EMR and, and, and my patients can send me a message and the staff can get a hold of me. And so I think having protected time off or not doing that is important. And, you know, it's tempting to like take a week off and about midweek go in there and, and work on things. So when I come back to Monday, it's not as bad, but having, having protected time off, um, having more meaningful time off, um, to, to do that, having someone to talk about those things, um, who I can, you know, who can understand and, and have an ear to them to help process those things is also important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, what along that same line, what gives you purpose? What, what, what provides you meaning? Myself, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, I think it's, it, it's simple and maybe even cliche. I just want to, to leave the world better than when I came in. Well, um, it's pretty clear to me that you're doing that. Um, I, I just want to reiterate, and then I have just a couple like really quick, what I call rapid fire questions for you, but I want to reiterate what I think is one of the most common barriers for providers, which is just the fear of not knowing what they're going to say. And I want to read it great to people that it's okay to just slow down. You said, slow down, pause, give space, provide some tissues and say nothing. And I think, I think that's beautiful. And, um, and, and you can even tell your patient, you know, I don't know how to, like, that's horrible. I don't know what to say next or, or um, what can I do to help? Mm-hmm. So we don't have to have the answers and, um, you know, as, as patients start, uh, dealing with their own trauma and coming up with, with, uh, coping strategies, the key thing is to support them in that once they develop those. And, and like I said, I'm not a behavioralist. Um, I don't have a lot of training in those. And sometimes I wish I had something else to add, but when the patients start down that journey themselves, you know, then, then we too can put in all our chips and help them out as much as we can. And I think you just nailed it, right? Like just listening and being there and circling back to it later. You don't have to be a therapist to um, be present. (laughs) Awesome. Okay. I have a couple of rapid fire questions for you. Ready? Yep. Um, What is one thing that people get wrong about doctors? Um, I I think the biggest one is that, that medicine is the diagnostics are, are medicine are precise. Mm. And like, I went to the doctor and I got a test and, and that test, that test is perfect. For example, and infallible, it's always, it always gives you a positive when there's a positive and um, there's always, there's never a false negative. Um, and, and uh, you know, that those testing's perfect and that, and that the diagnostics are, are pretty precise. I, th- I think it's the biggest thing. You're like, what do you mean you haven't found out what's wrong with me? Like, I, I don't, I think most of my, most of the medicine I, I work on is, is in the gray zone between like, we don't have a precise diagnosis or a precise treatment plan. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so if you could go back and talk to young resident Weiser, what would you tell him? Oh, uh, that's a good question. Um, you know, I think probably would be develop more of those patients. Um, and, uh, uh, I, I think that would be probably the biggest one is probably to slow down, have more patience. <laughs> <laughs> have more patience with yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Mm, okay. All of us. Um, often patients get intimidated when they think 
um, about their, their physicians, right? They think they're perfect. Um, can you share just one thing that makes you a messy human being? Oh, there's just so many. <laughs> um, you know, I, um, there's a lot of things there. I, I, I used to exercise more than I do now, so I don't exercise enough. Um, lately I'm into whiskeys, which I, you know, I, I don't, I'm certainly not in the risky category of alcoholism, but, uh, or developing alcoholism, but certainly drinking more alcohol than one should. So I, I think there's, I think there's, there's a lot that's, that's, that's in there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're all, we all have something, right. And I, I think that's what I want people to know when they listen. And that is, um, if, if, if it's a patient that's listening to this podcast, right. Providers want to hear from you. Physicians want to hear your story. They're messy. Everybody's messy. We all have stuff. And, and the more we talk about it, the more relatable it is. So, okay. Last question. It's the hardest one. It's 11 o'clock at night and you have a food craving. What do you reach for? Ah, I'm a, like a salty, crunchy snacker. So if, if I had an unlimited pantry, I'd probably go after chips. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much for doing this with me today. I really appreciate it. And um, thanks to everybody out there who's practicing rural medicine. It, it really is so integral for our communities. Absolutely. No, it's, um, there's a, there's a lot of people practicing in places where um, people can't get care. Otherwise, like if they weren't there, there would be no care given. Mm. Thank you. Okay, so that's it, friends. People insights that I've mentioned um, will be in the show notes. Nothing fancy. Um, also, the best thing you can do for yourself is go to my website at www.dramyllc.com and subscribe to my newsletter. It's free and it's for providers and it gets tons of relatable information out there to help you transform your practice. If you like what you're hearing here, please join us in the Provider Lounge. It's a learning collaborative excuse me, to build resilience and primary care. Um, it's where all of my training materials are regarding building resilience and creating those buffering mechanisms. So it's part content and it's part community. And we also get some continued medical education. It's really an incredible group of providers who come together. So this is the most important medicine. Please keep listening to people's stories and let them transform you and keep sharing your own because your humanity will help to heal others. All right. Well, that's it, friends. Um, anything that we mention on the podcast will be in the show notes. Nothing fancy, but I want to make sure that all the websites and links that guests refer to are included there for you. Um, the best thing you can do for yourself is go to my website, www.dramyllc, that's doctor spelled out, Amy LLC, and subscribe to my newsletter. It's free, it's for providers, and it's got tons of relatable information to help you transform your practice. And it comes out every Every week in a newsletter. Also, if you like what you're hearing on this podcast, I invite you to join us in the Provider Lounge. It's a learning collaborative to build resilience in primary care. It's a membership for physicians, physicians assistants, and nurse practitioners to have access to all of my training materials regarding resilience building and creating those buffers of relational health. So it's a little bit content and it's a lot community. We meet monthly, sometimes more, and you can get continuing medical education, all like getting doses of important information. And if we're honest, like a little touch of therapy. So part content, part community. It's really an incredible group of providers who work together in a learning collaborative and lean into conversations about trauma, building resilience, and other tough questions that come up in primary care. 
Folks, this is the most important medicine. Please keep listening to people's stories. Let them transform you. And please keep sharing your own stories because your humanity will help to heal others. All right, we'll talk soon.